0: Welcome to the Digital Workplace Podcast. These are conversations with CEOs of digital companies, thought leaders, and solution providers about how you can become a level five digital workplace. For the show notes and transcript of this episode, go to thedigitalworkplace.com. Welcome back to the Digital Workplace Podcast. Today, our guest is Lara Hogan. She is the co-founder of Wherewithal and the author of Resilient Management. Hi, Laura, how are you?
1: Hi, I am so excited to chat about all the things that we have in store today. I'm great. Thank you. How are you?
0: Not nearly as excited as me. <laughs> no, no, this is going to be fun. I've been following your work for a long time. You're a great thinker and one of the leading voices for sure on what management is going to look like in the future and looks like right now too. So I'm excited to get into that. But I've always wondered if you're a real human or a machine. So I got to ask you a, a capture <laughs> question to test this out. So your question is, what is an assumption that most people make about you?
1: Oh, it's a great that's a great question. I love this idea of capture questions because I often talk about like you know remember that remember managers you're working with a bunch of humans. So I feel like it is good to remember yeah. that we're all yeah we <laughs>
0: are just humans. humans
1: um I think I think that my my closest answer to this is uh either uh, what so I, I play a lot of video games um, mm-hmm. I play uh, a lot of destiny 2 specifically um, so I feel like people in that world uh, have an assumption that I just do that. I'm just like the nerdiest nerd and just do that all day. It's true, I do that a lot of the time, but uh, powerlifting is the thing that they would not often guess that I also do. And so, vice versa, in the powerlifting world, they don't often guess that I am also a huge <laughs> nerd who plays lots of video games. There so you go. Two, two assumptions in one.
0: That's great. I love that. I actually, the podcast guest won't know this, but I uh, grew my hair out in COVID and I realized that that's actually good for me because I'm. A little bit offbeat in some of the things, I think, but not that much. So if you see me just with like my regular haircut, then people will just assume, oh, I know what you think. Like, But now that I know <laughs> I'm weird to start with, and then I, I come in and say, I'm actually not that weird. As I was.
1: <laughs> it's a trap. Totally. Yeah, wrong. it is
0: a trap. <laughs> cool. All right. You're certified. You're human. Thanks. So that's good.
1: Great.
0: Uh, okay, well, good. Well, we'll start off. Just give us a little bit of introduction about yourself, uh, who you are, and what you've been up to.
1: Yeah. So uh, I these days, I coach... Leaders and managers of all kinds, mostly at tech companies, but lots, you know, not at tech companies too. Um, and I train managers, you know, to help give them the foundation that they've usually, you know, not been offered by their companies. Yeah. Um, whether that's like helping them give better feedback or know how to set expectations or just have a have a space to kind of process their their workplace challenges. Um, before I was doing this, I was the VP of engineering at Kickstarter. And before that, I was an engineering director at Etsy. And before that, various and sundry startups engineering and engineering management jobs. But yeah, this is, this is easily the best job I've ever had. Being able to like talk with managers of all kinds uh, at all these different kinds of companies around the globe. It's been a real, a real honor to support folks through this very tumultuous time, especially.
0: Yeah, absolutely. At what point in your career did you realize that, you know, you were actually like good at this part of management <laughs> and more than your peers are looking around and like, oh, everyone's struggling with this. You're not perfect, but you're like, I think I have something to say in this. Like, was there a light bulb moment for you that went off in?
1: Yeah, it's funny. You know, I I talked to a lot of managers who were either deputized with management responsibilities and didn't ask for them Mm -hmm. or uh, feel really out of their depth. Like they want to be really good at it, but they don't. They don't have that that internal feeling of like, hey, I know how to do a good job at this. Mm. I mean, there's there's so little out there in terms of like goalposts to look yep. for. Like, here's I'm doing an effective job. For me, it wasn't the effective job part that um, clicked. It was the I want to do this part that clicked. Uh, I'm one of the weirdos that like went into management because I thought like mm, this could be this could be my work mm. um, and really enjoyed it almost from the start. I had my first uh, direct report, and I really did not uh, work well together. So like, that was an important, like, you know, first experience of realizing like, Oh no, this person does not operate like I do. Like I'm, I'm, I'm managing this person. Like I would want to be managed and really quickly realized, Oh, that's not it. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we're all different. It turns out and need different things. And, um, he very early on, like there was one thing that happened where he gave me the silent treatment and I could not wrap my head around it. Just like, what child is this? You know, but then realize like, Oh, right. Everybody has different responses to friction and responses to frustration. And like what he, what I'm giving him is not what he needs and what he needs is something very different. Um, so for me that it was, even though it was like really hard, uh, there's still something in there that like opened my eyes to, you know, what management could be and like what, where I needed to grow. And that would still, even though it was tough, it was still really, uh, fulfilling, I would say.
0: Wow, that's great. Because they're in a time when it seems like the skill of actually leading other humans, we're suddenly realizing, oh, we don't know how to do that very well. We, we need to learn that. And, and so it's great that you have your voice in there. I want to jump straight into just you talked about this tumultuous time that we're in. Obviously, the last two years have been faced with a ton of changes unexpected changes. But now it's like two years in, can we really say it's unexpected anymore? Because we're in the middle of it, we kind of know what's going on. So I want to hear from your viewpoint, what have been some of the things you feel like people, specifically managers, have struggled with the most as they sink deeper into this world of digital work?
1: There's so many things that I think we could talk about here. The the ones that are really top of mind for me are, um, it, it was interesting to hear you say like the past couple of years, and like totally, the pandemic has thrown our, you know, processes for operating really on on their side but mm-hmm. even before then um at least uh in 2016 between brexit and the trump election it threw a lot of uh managers into um they, they were all of a sudden having these one-on-ones that were filled with grief and filled with fear of change and mm-hmm. and filled with um like i remember uh almost very quickly after the election uh, after the um trump became president immigration was completely turned on its yep, head and sure. uh, managers were all of a sudden needing to wrestle with like, I don't know how to support my teammates who are here on visas. I don't know how to help them understand uh, what the company is doing on their behalf and what, what I can do on their behalf and how to hold space for them um, in this awful time, but also this full of time full of grief. And I think it's really extended since at least in my work, it's, it's extended since then, you know, the past two years are a very specific aspect of it. But when I first wrote this blog post, Managing in terrible times in like that, those early days, like five, six years ago. Uh, mm-hmm. And a lot of those things still hold true today. Our, our teammates are like, we are dealing with like <laughs> uncertainty, <laughs> frustration, lack of control, lack of a sense of belonging, you know, all of these things are coming up for for our reports and also for us. So probably the number one thing I'm seeing is um, managers who just don't have the tools or the frameworks to help their teammates feel more safe and secure and help themselves get what they need. Like the managers get what they need to feel safe and secure during this tumultuous time.
0: And do you feel like people are responding to that by saying like, hey, this is not what I signed up for in terms of like, (laughs) I just want to get my work done and want to lead there. Or are they saying like, I want to get better at this, but I don't know. How do people respond
1: in different ways? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'm not, I'm not seeing as much like I didn't sign up for this. Because I think because of selection bias, right? The people that I work with, the people that are like, I want to do this. (laughs) So I'm sure that they're out there. Uh, I just don't have, you know, uh, have insight into that. So the people that I end up up working with are people who are like, I want to do what's right. um, And I want to support my team. But also, I I need help, too. Like, it's not just my teammates that are going through this. Um, I, you know, for example maybe uh, in a one-on-one, someone shares the recent loss of a relative with me and I want to, you know, hold space for them. I want to help support them. I don't know what the right thing is to do or say, but also my kids are running around in the background and <laughs> I am at the end of my rope too. And like, I, you know, I want to be a good manager, but also I'm, I feel like I'm unable to be right now. So it's, it's that angle. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm struggling um, both to support my team and to support myself. And they, they're looking not to necessarily get better at it, but they're looking for anything to help this feel more manageable right now.
0: And when we use that word manager a lot. I want to unpack that word because I feel like when I think about the manager that my father grew up with in the 80s, 90s or so versus what you're advocating for and talking for today, those seem like two different species yeah. of things that are out there. So tell us how you feel like that word has changed, uh, how that expectation has changed and how you'd like to see it change even more.
1: Yeah. So what's what's really bananas about this time is a lot of tech roles uh have really ambiguous names, titles. Mm. Um like I look around at CTOs, and CTO means different things to everybody too. And manager certainly does, but also lead, team lead, engineering lead has like it could mean so many different things in so many different companies. And so one thing I'm noticing is where manager, I think historically has meant like a, you know, an HR role where you're responsible for the people on your team. Mm. Um, these days, it means that, but also lots of other things really depending upon the organization. So what I, the way that I usually like to talk about it is in terms of your responsibilities, is not your title. So if you're responsible for supporting other humans, you're probably a manager, even if you don't have the title of of manager. Um, I see tech leads be responsible for other humans. I see, uh, People who have no explicit management responsibilities be responsible for other humans, um, just in terms of like giving you know career advice or feedback or you know uh, making sure we have enough staffing <laughs> to through the holidays. Like all that stuff is like being responsible for other humans. And um, management is a good catch-all term. They're De- definitely good for SEO, right? But like, it's, <laughs> I think it's going to continue to be meaningless for a long time. Yeah. The word that I would really like to see evolve um, is. <laughs> is around promotions. So I, I am really against the idea of you get a promotion to become a manager. Usually, and what I see is you get different responsibilities. It's not necessarily a lateral move. You definitely can get access to more power and more insight and more like context. Mm -hmm. Um, But promotion might not be it. It's a really different typically a different set of skills and a different um, set of attributes that you need to like work on. Uh, so I'm the, the one word, if whatever management is going to continue to mean lots of different things, but I wish that we would talk about the transition into management differently than just promotion.
0: What would you say uh, is a better way to say, if you see somebody who are like, I think you can lead other humans, you can be responsible for other humans. Well, mm-hmm. is that just uh, a- an additional responsibility or how would you phrase that?
1: So I would want to make sure that whatever changing responsibility happens, we actually do say like, this is a transition or this is an experiment or this is a role change or like still be explicit about the fact that something is changing here and preferably explicit about what is, is the pay changing? Maybe like, let's talk about that. But, you know, how are you being graded? How are you being, you know, assessed? What does success look like in this new version of the role that you're in? Again, promotion can mean all those things, but it also... People can become managers and all those things can happen and it might, it's probably not a promotion. It's just like a, you're thrown in the deep end of this set of skills that no one's prepared you for. And there's very little training typically within companies around becoming a manager. And so really promotion is not, (laughs) I don't think it's a good fit.
0: Well, let's talk about the idea of training. I want to put this question to you. Again, thinking that the type of manager that you are trying to, to create with the people you coach and work through. If you could put somebody through a training course, like just start them fresh, but you had to have them ready for a, what I'm going to call a high level team of individual performers who are just really talented and know their job well. We need somebody to be responsible for those humans, but we're going to put it into into the future. say 2030 mm-hmm. so far enough into the future that you can't really predict all those specifics, but whatever mm-hmm. principles are there now are, are still there. So what would you want to train them on now to make sure that they're ready for that jump?
1: Oh, this is such a good question. So uh, one of the surprising things that I um, I come across in, in my work training managers is that uh, most people, like not just managers, most people um, aren't familiar with the distinction between mentoring and coaching. Mm-hmm. So mentoring, the you know classical def- definition of mentorship is like you're sharing advice, you're sharing your perspective, you're sharing things that you've seen work and not work. So when I'm mentoring someone, I'm, I'm like, you know, bequeathing to them my knowledge, uh, helping them avoid pitfalls that they could have otherwise avoided. Coaching, and again, this term gets like really messed up because like you think about coaches in sports and it's kind of messy, but the traditional definition of coaching, especially when you go through like coach training, uh, you are not there to provide advice. You're not there to provide your perspective. It's not, in fact, not about you at all. It's about this other person. And so as a coach, your job is to ask them lots of open questions and help this other person introspect, connect their own dots, find their own answers. And that distinction is really important when we're leave- when we're leading very senior teams and very high performing teams because what the team needs from you is rarely your advice. Mm. What they need is time to introspect, to connect their own dots, to problem solve on their own. Studies have shown that mentorship doesn't help people grow. It helps people get unblocked for sure. Mm. And it helps people get onboarded to a team and maybe onboarded to a role. Like mentorship is a part of their work because you do need to like train people and teach people things, right? But that's not where growth happens. Growth happens in the coaching and then sponsoring space. So sponsoring is feeling on the hook to help get someone to the next level by giving them visible, um, you know, really impactful stretch assignments, uh, Delegating to them, like leadership work, stuff like that, and so that that skill and coaching as a skill are the two things that I, at least in my work, I really try to like help people level up and at least understand the distinction, but then really try to understand when to apply those two different skills and then how to do that effectively. Do you find it difficult to
0: can you wear all those hats at the same time? Or like, if I have a thirty minute one on one meeting with somebody, like should that be only coaching time? Or if I squeeze in some mentoring there or I squeeze in some sponsorship, <laughs> is that like? Helping that or hurting that? How does that work?
1: This is such a good question. So in in one of my workshops, my mentoring, coaching, and sponsoring workshop, we actually go through pie charts. And you, the idea is that these are you should have had a balance between these three skills in any one-on-one. And each person you work with is going to need a different balance at different stages. So that, that balance is going to evolve over time, which is when I think balancing, I think pie chart. Like you're right. When someone's onboarded to the team, they're going to need at least 50% of your time in mentoring mode. And like a sure. little bit in coaching mode and a little bit in sponsoring mode. When you've just delegated them to this big project, you've just sponsored them, you want to coach them. You want to give them those opportunities to actually develop their own brain wrinkles here, right? Because that's, again, that's where the growth happens. Um, So you're going to do much more coaching. You've just done sponsorship that's going to shrink down to a little pie slice. You still might do some mentorship to kind of, you know, nudge them along or, Help them know who to talk to, or uh, know when this deadline is, or you know, give them a sample presentation that they might want to copy and paste from. Um, but yeah, that that blend should continue to evolve over time. It's going to depend on this person in front of you and your relationship with them.
0: Good. All right. Well, I want to jump into <laughs> a topic about meetings because this is actually where I first came across some of your work was some of the advice you gave about. Meetings, what needs to be in a synchronous meeting when we're talking at the same time, what should be there in asynchronous meetings. And I really love the framework that you had and I I shared it with a lot of people that I know. But I want to get your take just currently here as we're at the start of 2022. What's your take on digital meetings? Where are we? How can we be doing them better?
1: Man, my my beef right now,
0: (laughs) (laughs) digital meetings,
1: uh, is that people often conflate uh, leading a meeting with facilitating a meeting, and mm. you know a lot of meetings are happening where everybody's just kind of participating, and no one's thinking about how, <laughs> what are we trying to get done here? Or if someone's thinking about that, no one's taking up the mantle of saying, "I'm going to help us make sure that we are accomplishing the goal of this meeting." When I think about the distinction between leading and facilitating, a leader of a meeting, you know, they actually have shared context. They're they they're invested in mm. what the outcome of this meeting is going to be. A facilitator isn't invested in the particular context and kind of like mentorship and coaching actually. So we're mentorship. We're like trying to like participate and give them advice. A coach, their whole job is to just help this other person succeed by letting them take, take the reins. A facilitator of a meeting, they're there to make sure that everybody knows what they're there to do. Things are kept on time. You know, we're using the tools at our disposal to make sure that this, this meeting is successful. We are hitting the goals. They're not there to like you know, toss in a few opinions. They're not there to like uh, contribute because if if they're doing that, their brain can't be spent on making sure everybody has an equitable opportunity to participate and voices are being heard and, you know, we're moving the group forward and calling timeouts. Um, so I think it'd be really useful going forward for people to start thinking about who are the good facilitators of meetings, you know, within our organization. Can I start bringing them into my spiciest or most arduous or just like most boring (laughs) meetings to help make sure that they're successful. Um, That way I can use my brain as a manager or leader on like the context of the meeting and actually participate in it. Cause I'm not, we can't, it's very rare to be able to do both facilitation and leading a meeting.
0: Yeah. I feel that tension myself a lot because a lot of the meetings I'm in, like I'm leading it. I'm very invested into the outcome. I'm responsible for the outcome in a lot of ways, but I'm also trying to facilitate and step back and let everything else happen. So when you tell me this, like, I think, okay, it's a great idea, but how am I going to ask somebody else to give half hour, 45 minutes of their time to come in and help me with MindBeam? Like, how's that going to work?
1: Totally. So I would look for the people who want to grow this skill within your organization. they are people that are hungry for more opportunities to demonstrate their leadership. And I would argue that strong facilitation skills are extremely well connected to leadership skills, you know, understanding the balance the voices in the room, setting ground rules, being directive with how we're going to be participating here, and then switching it up when you need to be empowering to help people understand, like, you know, hey, hey, everybody, I'm noticing things just got weird in here. Like, let's take mm. a time out, and, like revisit, like, are we here? You know, those kinds of skills are so crucial as leaders. Um, so I recommend finding people within your organization that are hungry to both practice leadership skills and one opportunity to demonstrate those leadership skills.
0: Well, what do you feel like is the, the best reason to get together in a live digital meeting? There's so many opportunities we have with with asynchronous communication. It makes us realize that this time we have together when we're, we're both on the same call at the same time is very valuable and it's very, you know, you want to take care of that. So what do you feel like are the core reasons like, yeah, text channels, this, don't put it here, just have a meeting about this. What are those situations for you?
1: So typically, uh, text-based communication mediums, you'll lose a lot of data, right? We When we are on, when we're, when we're face-to-face, meaning we're on a call, but we're, we can also see each other, mm-hmm. there's so much more data about people's body language, people's tone, how they're participating, that um, when left to our own devices, our brains will fill in those gaps for us. Right. Which is why we often see like text-based communication mediums, such so as like you know, turn into a tire fire is, uh, people are, are, our brains need to have that context. So they fill it in. It's not something we can really control. Um, so they'll be like, oh, so-and-so is mad at me or like, oh, this person's like really throwing up all these roadblocks for me when actually that's your brain guessing and Mm -hmm. might be right, but we don't know. So having, you know, face-to-face calls, um, it can be really useful for getting additional data. That said, voice also gives us some of that data. Hmm. So when we're cameras off, we can still get some information. I actually like to do some of my my coaching calls voice only because it allows people to be able to walk around and like move their body in ways, or like lie down on the floor, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and just not feel watched, not to feel perceived. And I think yeah. that's also an important um, option that's available to us. Right? Sometimes face to face it makes things harder for -hmm. people and like being able to be present and being able to feel like they're able to equally participate. So, um, yeah, so those are, those are two situations, voice and, you know, video, uh, where it can be a lot better to get more signal, to get more data, to make sure that people are moving, able to move forward together.
0: Yeah. And I love that distinction between sometimes the video, like we're on a video call right now, yeah. And I'm able to see like your facial expressions and you're moving. But it's also true that I'm trying to figure out, okay, what's the eye contact here? Am I looking at the camera or am I looking <laughs> at you? And so I'm distracted by that and thinking about other things too. And there's something powerful in that just a telephone call or just an audio only call that we should really respect and be able to use really well.
1: Totally. Now, the one additional thing I think that's important here is I, I do a lot of um, workshops on influence and like how how to get people to change the behavior or, you know, you're trying to enact a big change and you don't have like full power or authority to enact the change yourself. You need to get buy-in, you know, use these influence skills. Um, in that workshop, which I partnered with Paloma Medina, um, who's an incredible like leisure trainer, coach. Um, she she All of her stuff is based on like the neuroscience of how humans are at work. Uh, she taught me about three things you can do when you're face-to-face with someone and this totally works you know on video Mm. um to make sure people know that you are present you're listening and you're invested in what they're saying and again that's so critical when we're trying to do influence work um the first one is making sure that you are square to the camera open body language meaning you're not like crossing your arms um and you're not like tipping away from the camera one thing Mm. that people often do when they're thinking uh is like move away and like move their head Away, And that actually sends a bad signal <laughs> to mm. other people's brains, their limbic systems are like, uh-oh, this is a threat. There, th- something's wrong, you know? So making sure we're intentionally staying square to the camera um, with like open body language is important. Another thing to do is to make sure that you're keeping soft eye contact. So not hard eye contact, like for intensely sca- staring at the other person, which is very weird and creepy um but soft eye contact what Tyra banks would call smizing, right okay. it's okay to break eye contact and and regain it there's a bunch of studies about this um you don't have to be intensive intensive it but people do need to you know keep eye contact we're all used to looking just under our video cameras at this stage like no one's weirded out if you're looking slightly off center or slightly low or slightly high our brains are figuring it out like it's it's okay it's obviously you know not as good as, you know, in person, but like our brains are okay with it. Um, and then the last one is nodding at the pace that someone is speaking. So Mm. not like intensely nodding, but just like nodding very slowly at their pace or slightly slower. Um, it helps someone understand that you are, you're actively listening to them. You're like making sure that you're present with them. Uh, and one little bonus one that I like to do when I'm on video calls is to make sure I'm leaning one inch towards the camera so if i pretend i have my, my body weight you know equally placed on all four chair legs just making sure i'm leaning in one inch towards the camera actually feels a lot more connected um for the other person don't like scooch all the way up to the camera that's intense <laughs> that's a little creepy but just like one inch is just enough if you try it uh you can see how different it is for the person receiving you to like understand that you're present and you're listening
0: i love all those tips one thing i've also found just in myself is it's good to like show my hands sometimes, Mm -hmm. just even to prove to myself, like I am focused right now. Like I'm not trying to do some other task on the keyboard right now. That's been big for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm sure for you, it took practice, right? Like that's not like a natural thing that people do. People forget. And for anybody who's listening that's like, oh, this is a lot of lists. This is a lot (laughs) of rules that all of a sudden I now have to follow. I recommend simply practicing it. Pick one of these things and practice it for the next week of video calls that you have. I promise it becomes easier and more natural as you practice it. You you all of a sudden, st- like, stop remembering you need to do it because you're just doing it naturally now.
0: Just that skill of being engaged on a call, mm-hmm. I think is something we we all need to put more work into. I struggle so much if I'm in a call and I'm slightly distracted and then I know that minute when I'm like, uh, I'm just going to go check over here while this is going on. Mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. A, it's a tough skill to build.
1: And people can see it. Yep. So I wear glasses. People can absolutely see my <laughs> switch windows, right? Uh, but even just like people even just our brains notice when some when the light on someone's face changes meaning mm. they switched over to a different window with a different you know color temperature so like people do even subtly pick up on the signals that you're not engaged so if it's a really important call or you're just trying to build rapport and build connection with the other person you know keep these things in mind because it even if they won't necessarily like you know say it to someone later hey I noticed that Lara was really engaged on the call their brain is noticing it and, and you're building a connection that way yes
0: well, Laura, this has been fantastic. This is like only a sliver of what you talk about. So I want people to go in and to see a lot of your resources. We didn't even talk about biceps, which I know is one of your favorite <laughs> things to talk about. So where should people go if they want to learn more about all that?
1: Yeah. Go to laurahogan.me. I've got a blog there. There's a ton of stuff on there. There's a search bar. <laughs> Hopefully you can find what you need.
0: <laughs> and definitely sign up for the newsletter. I get a lot of value out of that. Oh, thanks. The things you posted that as well. And speaking of you, you talk about the manager Voltron idea, which I really like as well. And you're part of that for me. So I appreciate you participating in that and sharing what you've learned with the rest of us. Thank you so much. Great. Well, thanks for being on the show. We look forward to connecting with you again and continuing this journey along rebuilding work for digital work. This has been the Digital Workplace Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to leave a review wherever you are. Go to thedigitalworkplace.com and sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. It keeps you up to date on the best ways to build a Level 5 Digital Workplace. Music for the show is provided by City of Sound. I'm your host, Neil Miller. Keep moving forward.